Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I want to just read you a tweet before we do anything else. And uh, the tweet is by our first guest, and he he tweeted, uh, read Budget 2022, 304 pages. Not one section dedicated to agri-food, with famine or food inflation reaching record levels. Food and agriculture are in different places, but no focus for Ottawa. Our agri-food sector is simply an afterthought, and that is too bad. And our guest, and he's with us uh, from time to time, is Professor Sylvain Charlebois. He's the director of the Agri-Foods Analytics Laboratory at Dalhousie University, where he's also a professor. Well, uh, Sylvain, what do we make of this? Let's let's start with that that tweet. What did you expect in the budget, and when you didn't see anything that was dedicated and directed toward the agri sector, knowing what the situation is internationally and nationally as far as food supply is concerned, what does that say to you? Well, I think it's important to recognize that we're in the middle of a crisis here, uh, and. Uh, I mean, many, many regions of the world will experience famine in, uh, in weeks to come, months to come. The World Food Program has made an announcement on Thursday that over 40 million people will suffer from acute starvation uh, over the next several months. Uh, Germany also uh, just uh, notified uh, uh, its consumers last week that prices... Uh, retail prices, food retail prices will go up by anywhere between 20 to 50 percent in weeks to come because Germany buys a lot of commodities from, from Ukraine. So, and this is Germany. Uh, it's a highly developed economy. So, yes, we are in Canada. Uh, and yes, we do grow a lot of food, but all eyes are on Canada and North America right now to grow more food for the rest of the world. So, so there's that, and of course there's there's our food inflation situation in Canada, which is certainly uh, quite challenging for a lot of a lot of people out there. Uh, we're likely to reach eight uh, percent over the next uh, several weeks, and that's going to be tough for a lot of households. And so I was expecting something uh, in the budget that would actually, you know, tell us that the government is actually there to help. Uh, has uh, recognize the importance of food systems. It's looking at this issue from farm to store. It's looking at international issues. It's looking at making sure that uh, there are, there are no, there's enough production uh, for uh, for the rest of the world. I didn't see any of that. I was actually expecting a section dedicated to agri-food, but uh, there was none of it. Of course, there's there's food in different spots, but there's no there's no systemic vision. For, for, for example, they do talk in the budget about a national school uh, lunch initiative, which is a good idea, but where is the food going to come from? And there's no, there's no, there are no details. And, and in order to provide details, you need a vision, you need a strategy. So I was actually quite disappointed, which is why I sent out that tweet. Yeah, when I saw that, and I know you a little bit, uh, that really concerned me. And and I'm stuck on what you said about two minutes ago, and that is Germany is alerting its citizens 
the, the cost of commodities, and that includes food, I would imagine, goods going to go up between 20 and 50% in the next few yeah. weeks? In the next yeah. few weeks? This is a memo wow. that came from food retailers in Germany alerting German uh, consumers. And like I said, this is not North uh, Eastern Africa. Uh, this, is, this is Germany, uh, where a lot of processed foods uh, are consumed. So you can see that really the, the world is, is facing some heavy, challenging months uh, ahead of, and that's due to what happened, what's happening in Ukraine. Ukraine is, is a huge producer of grains, and they're, they're out of it this year. And, of course, Russia will produce a lot of grains, but nobody's going to buy from them either. That's going to put a lot of pressure on North America, including Canada. And so, and we don't really have a vision here, at least not federally. The provinces, prairie provinces approach it, I'm sure, because that's part of their DNA. But if we don't have a national vision and we don't do something to really improve the lot of farmers, and you wrote uh, in a a La Presse uh, op-ed that there is an opportunity, there is an option for the federal government to help farmers, and that has to do with with taxes and fertilizer. So can we just start start with that? What would you recommend? (laughs) I'm still stuck on that 20 to 50 percent. I'm wondering what's going to happen to us. But what would you say to the federal government? What's the way that they can help farmers this year for this year's crops? Well, Roy, pick an input, and I can tell you the government can do something about it, uh, whether it's fuel, fertilizers. I mean, essentially, farmers are, are, are desperate for, for, for more cash flow, essentially. And farmers do pay a lot of taxes, and taxes will go to governments. And so I was expecting some relief there to give a chance to our farmers to, you know, to get some, some breathing room, desperately needed breathing room, so they can produce more. I mean, farmers will be, prices are pretty good this year, so I suspect that farmers will do the best they can to produce as much as they can. But at the end of the day, it's really about making sure that we increase our chances to do well because Mother Nature will always throw at us curveballs. We saw what happened last year. We saw major droughts in Canada, the U.S., Russia, floods in Germany as well. Uh, so we don't know what's in store for this year, so we need all the help we can get. The other issue are logistics. Uh, I mean, we saw also how our logistical system is very fragile in Canada, and we need more investments. In the budget, I believe the amount is $1.9 billion over five years, which for infrastructure is nothing, really. Uh, and there's no vision for... Uh, a, a northeast corridor uh, that would lead us to Asia. Uh, there's no vision to connect us better with the Americans. And, of course, there's also the north with Churchill. There's no vision for that either, which is unfortunate. There's, there was no mention of that. And, and by the way, Roy, I mean, if you look for food security in the budget, 304 pages, you can't find it. There's, not, there's no mention of anything like that. All right, you took my breath away, so bad. When you said 20 to 50% increase in commodity prices in Germany in the next few weeks. Now, what about this country? What happens, what happens here? And is there some validity to the concern that I raised that countries will be as protective of their food supplies as we heard there were going to be about vaccines two years ago? That's right. And just to, to be clear, uh, uh, in Germany, we're talking retail prices, 20 to 50 percent, not commodity prices. 
retail prices. So the price consumers are actually paying. So yes, absolutely. When when we're looking at a scenario that we're looking at right now globally, obviously the first worry that we have to to face is is, is protectionism. People, companies, or well, countries may actually decide to hoard or to keep uh, some of their food for themselves, and which is absolutely natural. And I suspect that Canada may do some of that because inflation is already an issue. But going back to the budget, uh, Roy, honestly, I, I think everyone is fully aware of Ottawa's commitment towards environment and climate change. And, and, and I think like for agriculture, the budget will make our agriculture greener, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. However, right now in 2022, we needed a, we need a more efficient agriculture. We need a more efficient agri-food sector. Uh, and there was no provisions for, for processing either. And there's no, there's nothing to address interprovincial barriers either. So all of these things are really just not making our agri-food sector more efficient. And this is exactly what we need, not only as a country, but the world as well. Yeah. And we do know how difficult it is to move uh, from province to province, goods from province to province, because oh our interprovincial trade reality is, is bizarre. It's chaotic. That, absolutely. So we, we have signed some, some great uh, trade deals with different regions of the world, Asia, Europe, and and most certainly with with North America, but trading within the country to share the wealth. I mean, the, if, if there is one way, we talk about the equalization payment program, uh, but if there is one way to share the wealth uh, amongst provinces, would be to get rid of these interprovincial barriers. And unfortunately, there there's a lot of protectionism within our own country, let alone outside our country. But I do believe, Roy, that the situation we're facing right now globally is going to get countries to consider protection a little bit more seriously, unfortunately. What should Canadian consumers expect? Is there any way to project what we'll be looking at as far as, A, food security is concerned, and then also the cost of food? How quickly Do we know how quickly or do we suspect how quickly it may spiral? Well, so the, the Ukrainian effect uh, is starting already. It's impacting some parts of the grocery store already, uh, especially grain-based products like bread, for example. You may have noticed that bread prices have started to go up. Uh, different products as well at the center of the store, uh, they're, they're a little pricier now, and that's going to continue for a while. I don't think access is going to be a problem in Canada. We will continue to, to show up at the grocery store. Uh, and there'll be food waiting for us. But in, in a grand scheme of things, uh, Roy, I must say, Canadians should feel lucky to at least have a shot at buying something, anything at the grocery store, because in other parts of the world, it's they, they, a lot of people won't have that luxury. So, yes, yeah, food prices are going to go up. Yeah. We're talking starvation in some parts of the world, yes? Eight to ten million people will experience famine over the next several months. And uh, on Thursday, the World Food Program did notify uh, countries that uh, uh, we're likely to see 47 to 49 million people experience uh, acute starvation. So that's really, that's just under famine. So 
this is not pretty, uh, Roy. I, in my lifetime, I don't think I've, I've seen something like this. And, and I think Canadians should be concerned about what Ottawa intends to do. Again, yes. a green economy, great. I'm not sure it's the right time now. Well, they seem to be uh, sort of focused on one aspect of their mission, their own perceived mission, and they don't seem to understand or accept that there are other issues, and in this case, crises that need leadership. Let me just ask you this one question that comes sort of out of, not really out of left field, because it is important, but farmers have been, and there's concern around the world now because of the situation in Ukraine, um, the availability of fertilizer, Sylvain, big issue. Absolutely. Canada has a system that actually makes fertilizer prices higher uh, through Campatex. There is collusion going on in Canada between Mosaic and Neutrina, and we need to talk about this. I know that the Saskatchewan government benefits greatly financially from, from this setup with Campatex, but I think we need to have a, a, a harder, a more, a more difficult conversation around how Canada can actually make fertilizers more affordable around the world. Uh, I'm, we don't have time to go into the details, but Canada is responsible, partially responsible for higher fertilizer prices around the world uh, through this uh, this system called Campatex. And and I think there's we need to have a conversation about that. The other thing that really uh, bothers me, Roy, is is the budget itself is trying to make our culture greener. But if you talk to any farmer out there, <laughs> I mean, farmers are the best environmental stewards we have in the entire country. I mean, they actually make a living by taking care of our environment. And the budget kind of sends the message to farmers saying, you know what, you're not good enough as environmental stewards. We're going to help you. We're going to throw you money. We're going to throw money at you so you can be better at it. But in terms of efficiency, in terms of growing more, well, we'll just wait a while. That's kind of the message we got on Thursday. That's the message that farmers got on Thursday. Yeah. In uh, 20 seconds, how? I have to ask you this question. I have 20 seconds. How much m more expensive do you expect food to get in this country? So we're at 7.4% right now. Uh, I would say that, uh, so in America, the United States, where I am right now, uh, we're at 8.6%. And historically, we've all always caught up to the Americans. So don't be shocked if Statistics Canada over the next several months will tell you that food prices are going up by as much as 9%. Okay. That's probably where we're going right now. You know, I have to say this. The vast majority of people do not resort to... Um, deplorable content on emails i see a couple you just realize that there's not much going on upstairs when you read these things but they're there and they're you know you can you can do this kind of thing as you know you, you some people send emails or social media posts and it includes content that they wouldn't have the uh, testicular courage to say to your face but because there's safety and anonymity on social media and the Internet, they feel brave. So, you know, I didn't find a whole lot uh, on. I checked my various platforms today. There's not much there. A few things that are a little dicey, but for the most part, I think people are sensible, but not always. And there's a lot of talk, uh, certainly from this federal government, 
about changing the way business is done, the business of free speech or freedom of expression, as we say in this country. Freedom of expression is done online. And uh, the government is pursuing um, Internet regulation, as you know, there was legislation proposed, almost passed before the last federal election. That got a lot of pushback. And they're at it again. Uh, it's C-10 or C-11. I think it's C-10. There's also C-18 that's getting a lot of attention. Peter Menzies is a National Newspaper Award-winning journalist, senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute. There was quite an interesting webinar on this whole issue at uh, MLI.com. He's the past editor-in-chief of the Calgary Herald and a former vice chair of the CRTC. So whenever I see CRTC, those, Peter, are letters that scare me. They should. (laughs) That's good to hear. (laughs) That's what we like. Government oversight. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yourself? I'm well. Thanks for coming on. This is a very important issue. And, and you know, it reminds me, a few years ago, there was a story about a human rights tribunal hearing, and the investigator for the human rights tribunal had been uh, researching freedom of speech, and the uh, because it was a freedom of expression issue, but he got up on the stand, or he said to the commission, to the tribunal, that there is no such thing as enshrined freedom of speech in Canada, that that's an American concept. I've never forgotten that. And it speaks to me of uh, the real need to protect freedom of expression in Canada. It's constitutionally enshrined. Is it under assault, under threat? We know it's under review. What's your sense of what's going on? Oh, I think for sure it is. The uh, The current government seems really not to like the Internet very much, and it doesn't like the conversations that take place on it. Um, it seems afraid of it. It seems to think that these people speaking freely in their own terms, kind of Orwellian twist in my view, um, that they think that's a threat to democracy. Uh, they do speak in favor, you know, uh, uh, Pablo Rodriguez, the current heritage minister, will say, no, 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 we believe in freedom of speech. But there, there, there's every what makes me, what unsettles me is when they speak of freedom of speech, it always ends with a but. Whereas, I mean, in Britain, where they're doing some online uh, regulation too, the, the, the British regulator Ofcom is like, very, very vocal about its defense of free speech in terms of that. And uh, there's there seems to be a lot in Canada right now of sort of saying, yes, Section 2 of the Charter guarantees freedom of speech, freedom of speech. But, you know, Section 1, there's the reasonableness clause and that sort of stuff. And let's just talk about that free speech isn't absolute. And hey, let's be clear that the burden of proof on <laughs> on the speech issue does not belong to the speakers. It belongs to those who seek to suppress the speech. And I'm not seeing that. And it's, uh, I find that uh, creepy. What is your sense about why this is such a focus for this particular federal government? For the heritage minister, the foreign affairs minister has talked about it as well, which I find particularly unusual. But it's such a focus and such a feature of this government, freedom of expression, and then transfer that to social media and the internet, and I don't think, Peter, and this is just my uh, supposition, I don't think they're just intending just uh, the internet and uh, and social media, but that's where the legislation's pointed. 
Yeah, I mean, if you take a look at uh, C-18, I mean, one of the things that stood out for me, I mean, C-18 is about making big online companies like Facebook and LinkedIn and Google to uh, compensate, they call it. Um, it started with newspapers, and now it seems to have spread to broadcasters as well, even though they never made the argument. They were complaining that the advertising has shifted to these online companies, and it's not fair, and they should get compensated for the value they provide to the online companies. Now, I mean, we can have a long debate about that because I I personally haven't seen the data that proves that. And there's no doubt that the online companies provide a great value at no cost to these companies by giving them this platform and access to billions of eyeballs for free. But what this does in this is, is, is C18 insists that when these, first of all, that there be an agreement and that money be paid, right? So if this is a commercial transaction, it then insists that the money that's paid to the media, let's say pick a newspaper, the Ottawa Citizen, um, has to be spent on domestic news coverage. Not international news, not anything else. This is domestic, right? national news. And then that agreement, for some reason, has to be approved by the CRTC. And I don't get that at all. I mean, if this is a valuable uh, commercial agreement between two engaged parties, and they're both satisfied with the agreement, why, what's going on here? Why does the CRTC have to approve that? Because if it can approve how the money is spent, surely it can disapprove and suggest different things. I think there's, you know, it, it sounds, it's easy to argue that, oh, well, it's just a, a matter of routine, but it, it opens a door that definitely should not be open sympathize with a lot of the media uh, suffering through their woes and that sort of stuff but surely this isn't the solution because it it puts it puts the state in the newsrooms of the nation yeah it's it's third party government's supervision of a well, private agreement thing you see with this with this government is that it, it doesn't seem to think that there's a problem that can't be solved with more with either more spending or more regulation it, it really, and I think that's, you know, probably <laughs> where a lot of your audience might disagree with them and that there are problems that can be fixed. When I was at the CRTC, the general view towards the Internet was, I mean, not that there aren't concerns, there are legitimate concerns about, you know, uh, criminal activity taking place, uh, you know, in terms of uh, child pornography and that sort of stuff. There are, And there's other concerns about privacy and data collection and all that sort of stuff. But our general view was that, this technology, this entity, the Internet, had evolved quite nicely without our uh, interference. Um, and that, you know, away it goes. I mean, there comes a point with everything where you want to take a look at things, which is what our webinar that we did with uh, talking about the shared paper I did with uh, former CRTC chair, Conrad von Finkenstein, tries to address. If you're going to do it, what we're trying to say is here's how you do it. Well, and I think once you start telling people that you're going to uh, manage their content, their freedom of expression, which is, again, constitutionally enshrined, it's in the Charter, once you start to tell people that you're going to manage their content or imply that you may or you, you know, give yourself the option to do so, that really is going to throw a chill on people using their speech freely as they're entitled to do as they have the right to do um so 
you had a, you and uh, um, Conrad von Finkenstein had a, a proposal named Social Media Responsibility and Free Speech, a new approach for dealing with Internet harms. Tell us about that, please. Well, the approach that we've taken is that rather than what was recommended to the government, that they create a regulator that's just going to police the Internet for people saying bad things, um, we thought that uh, we used a, uh, the analogy Conrad actually came up with was we, we would try to use think of social media companies and your speech the way you might think of a bank and your money. And, you know, you create a structure that imposes upon them a duty of care over your speech. In other words, uh, make sure that social media companies, if they are as they are controlling speech, and they do, right, can people from harassing each other and threatening each other and and saying nasty things about each other, make sure that they do that fairly and provide a, a regulator that is an avenue appeal for that. Make sure that they have codes of conduct that people, you know, sign on to when they when they when they join in those engage with those with those platforms and understand the rules you know if you're going to come into my house this is how you want we want you to behave and that's fair that 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 doesn't restrict uh, other platforms on the internet so what we're saying is like let's just focus on being responsible let's not focus on controlling everything everybody says at, at any moment let's focus on being responsible, making sure the companies behave responsible, make sure they don't use their these huge power positions that they've created as some sort of bully pulpit in which they can manipulate things to the right, things to the left, or however they want to do it. Make sure that they are conducting themselves in an ideologically and politically neutral fashion, and that they are protecting your speech. Yeah, And, and this is a huge difference, right? They should be protecting your speech, right? They should not be, um, I mean, they should be protecting you from abuse, too. And they should be protecting you from exposure, you know, from being a victim of, uh, you know, uh, revenge porn and things like that. Those are all criminal activity. Let's get this straight. There's a big difference between criminal activities and going where the government seems to want to go with its online harms bill and saying you can't hurt anybody's feelings. The university student at uh, Simon Fraser University in British Columbia called in as we were talking about high school um, graduation and graduates of high schools. So actually graduates of the public school system, so primary and secondary. And whether or not when you graduate from high school, you actually have a founding, you have an educational base to work forward from. To help you if you choose to go into the work world, if you choose to go into trades, if you choose to go to college or university, do you get the fundamental grounding from your high school and and elementary um, education. So we talked about that with Michael Swagster, a Manitoba high school teacher, senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, op-ed writer, author of books, including What's Wrong With Our Schools and How We Can Fix Them. And uh, Michael had just done a study for the Fraser Institute, you may recall, on standardized testing. So I opened up the phone lines. And uh, we started to hear from parents, students, and, you know, I will never forget doing a show on this issue some years ago, and um, a student called in and said, I can't really even read my graduation certificate. I'm functionally illiterate. But he graduated. 
Because they also have something known as social promotion, and you know how that works. You don't understand what you're supposed to have learned in a particular school year, but they move you into the next grade anyway. So what you're supposed to have learned, which should lead you into the next year, is lost on you. So what happens? You get lost. Happens all too often. And I've talked to so many parents over the years who've tried to get their kids to repeat a grade, and they have to fight the teachers, they fight the school administration, they fight the school board, and only if they absolutely, with total determination, dig in their heels do their kids repeat a school year. Now we're talking about grade one, grade two, grade three. I received an email last week from a mother who said that she worked on having her son repeat grade one because she did not want him to fall behind. We're going to open up the phone lines in a few minutes. In fact, we'll do it now. 1-800-263-2428 is the number. 1-800-263-2428. I want to ask you this. When you graduated from high school, when you left high school, did you have the basic education that you needed to get out into the work world or get into a trades program or go to college, or go to to university, did you have what was required? Did you have enough training, teaching, understanding when you left high school? If you're a parent of a child who graduated from high school, are you satisfied that your child got the kind of education that you paid for? Because you pay taxes that you paid for in the public school system? Did your child get the kind of education that, that, that he or she deserved, that you paid for, that he and she needed? If you're a teacher, what's your sense of the whole question? You may remember a teacher by the name of Lyndon Dorval from Edmonton. Mr. Dorval gave a student who did not even complete an assignment, actually didn't hand it in, Mr. Dorval gave that student a zero And Mr. Dorval was disciplined by the school administration. It became so impossible for him that he quit teaching. He was on this show quite a few times. And we had some of his students on this program. They loved him as a teacher. So 1-800-263-2428 is the number. Did you find that the public school education you received set you up properly for the rest of your life? For the next phase of your life anyway? whether it was working, whether it was college, whether it was university. If you're a parent, share your thoughts. If you're a teacher, let's hear from you, 800-263-2428. Michael Zwagstra is back with us. And uh, uh, again, he's a Manitoba high school teacher, senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. What's Wrong with Our Schools and How We Can Fix Them is one of his books. The other one is uh, Sage on the Stage. Michael, is anything that I've said, what have I left out? Well, you, you've covered quite a bit there. I mean, that's, uh, those are some of the obvious challenges in, in school. And uh, I guess the key thing for me is also, um, do, we have the, do we have the right focus? Do we have enough focus on the academic basis? Do we have enough basics? Do we have enough focus on the content knowledge that all students need to acquire? Because that, of course, is directly linked to things like uh, reading comprehension. And uh, because there's only so much time in the school day, and it's very easy for these key things, these fundamental things to be crowded out by all these other activities and such that could be worthwhile in and of themselves. But if, for example, if a kid doesn't learn how to read in school, they're not going to be able to learn a whole lot else. And so these, these things really are absolutely fundamental. 
We have had educators, I'm sorry, uh, employers on this program, on this very issue, and, and they would call in and they'd say, I, I, I recognized a, a certain talent, I, I recognized an ability. I saw there was a, uh, a nucleus of ability in this young person who came and applied for a job, so I hired them. Then I realized I had to hire a remedial uh, assistance for them in whatever it happened to be, reading, writing, math, uh, whatever it was. And they felt it was sufficiently important to keep a young person who has real talent, they, they discern talent, on staff. And I say to myself, why wasn't it important enough for the school system to provide this young person with that nucleus of talent, with a fundamental education that required to go to the, do that job and not require remedial assistance? Am I being unfair? No, I think that's, I think that's pretty straightforward. And uh, uh, it was actually just earlier this year that the Ontario Human Rights Commission released a report. It was called the Right to Read Report. It was all about the way reading instruction is taught, is, is taught in Ontario. And the report looked at the evidence and what the research shows and found that the approach being used in Ontario, which is, which is called the three-queuing method, which is basically a fancy way of saying whole language where there's a lot of guessing involved, uh, as opposed to phonics where you're learning the letters and, and how they sound out and, and all that, because uh, the evidence is quite strongly in favor of uh, traditional phonics. By not using the most effective uh, approaches to reading instruction, it's a lot of students are being left behind. And it was a, it's a big enough issue that the Human Rights Commission of Ontario uh, released an entire report on this. And uh, it's definitely an important issue. Does social promotion still go on? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty common uh, for students to, to be moved from one grade to the next. And I would argue that, uh, that in many ways it's, it's a symptom of a much bigger problem because obviously... It's not ideal when students are passed to the next grade without the necessary skills, but it doesn't necessarily fix it to just simply hold them back. If the previous year didn't work for them, uh, another year of it, if it's not being done very well, doesn't work either. The bigger issue is how is the instruction being done, and uh, are we putting the necessary remedial uh, measures in place? And so uh, in many ways, it really is just a symptom of what's, what's really the bigger problem. Let's take some calls, Michael, and see what we hear, Okay. Sounds good. All right. Kathy's in Mississauga. Kathy, how do you want to approach this issue? Well, I have two children in the elementary school system, and my, my view is that the teachers are doing the best that they can with what they're given. When you have a classroom full of people who are excelling and don't need a lot of instruction, and then you have the kids who do need some a little bit more attention and instruction, and then there's another category of kids who maybe been what I think passed along through the grades that maybe haven't uh, really deserved to pass because they haven't understood all the curriculum, but they're in this class now. And now they are the troublemaker group, and they make it more difficult for the other students and the teacher to get the lesson across to those children. And so I have one of my children in that class, very disruptive class, and she has a very difficult time learning. And I've had to enroll her in outside-of-school um, curriculum-based learning to catch up on what she can't understand during the class. And she can't understand it because of the disruption in the classroom. Yeah, there's a lot of distractions, a lot of um, there's swearing going on in the classroom, there's stealing from backpacks, there's kicking, there's pulling hair. There's a lot of things going on in the classroom. Michael, what do you say to this? 
Well, it's obviously a, uh, that's a serious problem. I mean, when you have uh, when you have disorder and disruption in a classroom, it's very hard for learning to take place. Uh, I do know that in general terms that uh, it's very important to uh, for a teacher to take charge of the classroom right at the beginning of the year, and that means ideally taking a firm approach where the teacher is clearly in charge. Uh, if you don't set that tone right at the beginning and you're sort of making everything about co-learning and we're going to co-write the rules together, it's a lot harder to tighten the reins later in the year than it, than it is to loosen later on once you've set the parameters. Advice, again. Well, Michael, what advice would you give Kathy at this point? I mean, she, her, her daughter is taking is being tutored and, uh, and she can't learn in that environment. What, what advice is there for the parent? Well, it's, it's, first of all, I mean, obviously talk to the teacher involved if, if she has not done so already, which I suspect she probably has, and then you would move it up to the next level, you would talk to the principal, and you work your way up accordingly. You, it, because teachers and principals do want to make things work, and so my first bit of advice in every case is always talk to the teacher first, and then talk to the principal if you're not able to resolve it at that level, and then, uh, and then go on from there. But uh, that is, uh, it's always good to make sure you've got good communication, even if you don't entirely agree with the way the teacher is teaching. The vast majority of teachers are wanting to do a good job. Okay, Kathy, what's your experience been? Uh, yeah, we have had the meeting with both the teacher and the principal together. And, uh, and, and, and it, I, gather, I, I gather nothing was resolved. Um, you know, they, there are a lot of surprised looks on their faces, like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that was happening. I'm like, Hmm, really? I don't know. Like the stories that my daughter comes home with, I find very difficult to to think that this is unknown going on in the classroom. Not from what you've described. I don't see how that couldn't be known. Yeah. It, it sounds to me like the teacher uh, is maybe being uh, abandoned by the school administration. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But have you uh, have you thought? Uh, because I've I've heard this many times, well, several times anyway, when we talked about this on the air. Parents saying, "I had to take my child out of public school, put my child in a private school, and just absorb the financial hit." Yeah, well, that's something we've always kind of been teetering on. Like my daughter has been having miserable days at school, coming like three out of five days of the week, asking. If she's going to be changing schools, I'm going to be changing schools, right? I'm going to be changing schools, right? I can leave this school. Oh, so we hard, eh? we started with signing her up with like extra extra learning outside of the out of the school and seeing if that helps and doing stuff at home with her. Uh, but in hold the on, classroom- hold on, Kathy, hold hold on. I, I don't want to lose you. I hope I don't lose you here. Let me put Kathy on hold. I'll do it. Don't you guys do it? I'll do it. And uh, because I want to get Stephen on, who's calling in from Calgary, and Stephen is a tutor. Stephen, uh, thanks for calling. Is is Calgary's is Kathy's story? Does that sound fairly standard to you? Yes, yes, it does. I deal with a lot of people that uh, students and ones that want to finish their get their high school diploma, and they have to uh, do math from uh, grade ten to twelve from. Uh, basic algebra and uh, differential calculus, integral calculus, and uh, they're completely and totally lost. So I give them a set of questions uh, and see 50 of them and see how they do, and then I would know uh, what to attack. Uh, And then I would give them as many questions in their weakest uh, points. And uh, they end up... So the the question I have is this. 
does that actually help the student in the classroom environment? Because Kathy's daughter is discouraged, clearly, maybe somewhat depressed about going back to the school. So does don't leave Kathy on, please. Don't don't take her off. Leave her there. Um, it, I just wonder if that helps. Uh, Kathy, would do you think it would help if uh, if if your daughter were tutored and you know I mean, she sounds like a, a young lady who is who gets what's going on in the classroom but just can't deal with the disruptions. Oh, she really enjoys where where I'm taking her for for math. Um, she goes twice a week for an hour each time, and they never both daughters never complain um, about going, they enjoy it. They always like going and they have a very positive experience. They have a, they have a ratio of one instructor to four, to four kids. And it can be at any level. They kind of spend 15 minutes, um, one-on-one time with them. And I think that makes the biggest, the biggest difference is more help in the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wish you I wish you well. I wish your daughter well. We're going to follow up on this, but thank you so much for the call. Uh, Stephen, stay on the line in Calgary. Um, Michael, are, are students moved out of classrooms, classes ever, if it's an, an, an untenable situation for the student? Uh, there, certainly, there like there's all types of things that uh, that can be done, and it, I have to really emphasize here: it really depends on the local situation in terms of you know your administration, your school board, the general philosophy, and such. It's it's not the same from school to school on this. Some some are much tighter than others, and then of course, um, so you've got you, it's it's really not one size fits all on this. You have uh, some very different approaches. Uh, depending on where you happen yeah, to be. I, I, I get that, but let me just play devil's advocate here. If, if there's a student who's not being, uh, who's not getting ahead because of disruptive, and in this case, sounded like violent behavior in the classroom, that has to be addressed. The behavior has to be addressed, the student has to be protected, and has to be done, done very quickly and uh, with authenticity. Oh, of course. I mean, it's, it, you, I mean I, I've been always been very clear on this, that you, 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 in order for learning to happen, you have to have an orderly classroom environment. It's very hard for any learning of any consequence to happen if it's a disorderly environment. This is, this is just basic and fundamental. And uh, so when that's not in place, it's very hard to learn anything. So I want to get another call on very quickly, but people doubt that anybody can graduate without being to, able to properly read their graduation certificate. It does happen. Yeah, it's obviously an extreme case, but unfortunately, I mean, it's uh, this is the, and this is part of the challenge we were talking about last week about my report on standardized testing, and that when you move away from having the standardized testing, particularly at the grade twelve level, uh, it uh, you're 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 moving away from that objective measurement tool, which helps to sort of uh, well helps to to catch these sort of things, and that's one of the reasons among many that I'm in favor of having you know, regular standardized testing in addition to the teacher-created tests that take place in the classroom. Okay, and you can read Michael's report at the Fraser Institute website. We'll be talking with Professor Ken Coates before the end of the hour, Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Johnson Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan, the author of What to Consider if You're Considering University. Professor Coates will talk about this issue as well. The reason that I uh, brought up this uh, can't read the graduation certificate is one of my producers in the studio some years ago, I've talked about this on the air, he would write me notes about who the next caller was and what the caller wanted to say, and I couldn't read them. And I just said to him, I'm not trying to be unkind to you, but I have no idea what you're writing. 
And he said, I'm very sorry. I don't know how to spell. It goes back to my school years. I'd be given a spelling test, or we'd be given a spelling test. If we couldn't spell a word, they'd give us enough words until they dumbed them down far enough that we could spell them, and then they'd pass us. He said that on the air. Nancy's calling in from Vancouver. How are you, Nancy? And thank you for the call. I'm well, Roy. Thank you very much. I really wanted to comment and uh, that the teacher really does make all the difference. Uh, despite fighting with a vision impairment all my life, I was a really good student in school. I did well. I liked learning. I went to high school, and uh, somebody in grade 9 decided that I would do well in the Excel program in math. And they put me with a teacher. God bless his soul. He was the nicest man in the world, but he couldn't teach worth beans. And I went from excelling at math to almost failing that year. The only thing that saved my life was another teacher who ran a tutorial after school, and I would go see him two or three times a week, and he would explain it to me in ways I could understand, and I actually made it through that year. Unfortunately, that ended any aspirations of doing anything with math in my life after that. Um, I went, decided to go to university and go into education because I wanted to be a teacher, and I found that so many teachers were just in it for the money that I lost all hope, and they didn't believe a visually impaired student could teach. So my career took other plans. But, you know, that teacher makes all the difference in the world. And I encourage Kathy to find a teacher that will teach in the way her daughter can learn. What a great story, and it's so true. And we remember the good teachers for the rest of our lives. We remember their names. They will always be in our memories, and we will always be thankful for them. Nancy, thank you for the call. You're welcome, Roy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's uh, talk to one of uh, Michael's uh, colleagues. I, I don't know if you know each other, but you're in the same profession. Rick is a teacher in uh, in Victoria, British Columbia. Rick, thank you for the call. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, I don't really know where to start because I've got a background. I ran my own business, and uh, I've put my own three kids through school, and I've been a hockey coach for 12 years. I've got a lot of background work with kids. I never came to teaching till I was 50. And uh, what I find after I've my own personal opinions aside, what I have found after about five years of teaching now is no matter what, everything starts at home. So. Uh, I never had an aspiration to be a teacher when I was younger, first of all, so it's not like I always had it in the back of my mind. But what I found is, through all the parent-teacher interviews that I've had, when you see it, you have a student that's kind of on the edge, and very often, as soon as you put the parent, as soon as you meet the parent and have them one-on-one, aha, that's where it stems from. So I, I hear people say, oh, yeah, we should teach uh, balancing checkbooks in, in school. I go, yeah, that would be brilliant. That I can... Can you draft up the lesson plan for that? Because kids are really excited to learn about that. So we talk about engagement in the class. And if the, if the student at home is hearing from the parent, oh, yeah, those teachers just want the summers off. They, they're fat cats. Uh, they're Rick, this, Rick, hold on that. a second. How, how, do yeah. you, how do you connect? How do you energize the students? What method do you use? Oh, okay, I start just with putting desks in a circle instead of rows so that everybody faces me one-on-one so that we're there's no phones you want to you want your phone there's the door uh, i tell them from the first day 
I will go through a wall for you, but I won't work harder than you will. And the lesson to that is something that they don't see because the responsibility of your own education relies within them. I cannot, I cannot force someone to think. I can only inspire them to want to learn. And, and, and I can't remember whose quote that is, but it's, it's so, so, but I can't do it if they have not had that that support at home that says, hey, go to get an education or you're not going to go further. Where I'm teaching right now. Rick, hold on a sec. Let me get Michael into this with you because they're both teachers and I, I gather you're both good. And I and, and Rick, I have to tell you, in grade 10, we had it. Uh, nobody liked history. I, I was the oddball. I liked history. I did everything that I wasn't supposed to do in school, but I loved history. And and our grade 10 teacher came in and he, he pulled one of the maps out of the uh, ceiling, right? And he said, okay, so there's a country on the left here, a country on the right, and the two countries want to take over the country in the middle. You guys on the left side of the classroom, you are the country on the left. You on the right side of the classroom are the country on the right. Gather together, work out a plan on how are you going to take over the country in the middle, and we'll talk about it for the last 10 minutes of class. It went over so well. He started to have after-school classes, tutorials for history. Rick. Michael, you couldn't fit a body into the classroom. He was so good. Well, from from my point of view, that's it. That's engagement. That's getting kids to step outside the the traditional. I've got. I mean, socials is one of the. I teach socials, First Nations studies, art, uh, English, all the. I call them the flaky courses where you got to think, you got to tie your emotion in. And engagement is everything. Right now, let me engage Michael's Mikestra on this. Michael? Yeah, I think that Rick has made some good points here. I guess the, the one uh, caveat that I would say is that, uh, of course, it's true that uh, a student's home environment has a, ma- has a major impact on them. How, how could it not? Uh, at the end of the day, as a teacher, I don't have control over the home environment. I mean, I teach the kids. We teach the kids that we have. And so my focus in terms of what I comment on and write about is what do I do in the classroom? What can we as teachers do? And uh, so regardless of what the home environment is, because some students have come from more advantaged situations than others, but we need to focus on the variables that we can control. And the variable I can control is what do I do as a teacher? And so that's uh, that's what I choose to focus on. Okay, I have time, Brian. Thank you for the or Rick. Thank you for the call. I have time for one more call here in Winnipeg. Brian is a former teacher. Brian, what's the uh, the point you want to make here? Uh, hello, Roy. Uh, thank you very much. A couple of things. Number one, um, you know, in, in terms of the the individual, well, first of all, I, I taught high school for 31 years, and you were talking about the individual who could not read his uh, graduation certificate. I can honestly say that in 31 years, I did not encounter a single student graduating from a grade 12 class who could not read or write. So I think we're we're talking about an extreme case here, and it's like taking, you know, somebody's been vaccinated three times for COVID, they get COVID and they still die. Well, they are the exception to the rule. Yeah, but it, was, it wasn't all that unusual that I would hear from a student who is functionally illiterate and would be happy to, to, to say that because they had uh, changed their own life and taken the courses required and done what they needed to do despite uh, not being educated as they should have been. Okay, now let me. I try. I try to be. I try to be objective. So let me come down on the other side. Um, I have seen cases where, well, let's let's face it. It's top down. Organizations are top down. So if the superintendent of the school division says nobody is going to fail, 
Well, that's passed on to the school administrator. Nobody is going to fail. And that's passed on to the teacher. Nobody is going to fail. And even though teachers know that this student or that student should not progress, they should be held back, not as punishment because it's in their best interests. It's not going to happen because it's top down. Everything top down. And I appreciate the call. Michael, we have about 45 seconds. Do you want to just uh, tie this up for us? Well, it's uh, it's obviously there's a lot of things to uh, to consider here. A lot of things have been said. I mean, at the end of the day, I would encourage any parent obviously talk to the talk to the teacher, talk to the principal. That's always the first recourse. And uh, as a teacher myself, the important thing is what do I do in stu- with, with students in the classroom? I mean, my my approach to teaching is more I'm more on the traditional side of the spectrum, where I think it's important for the teacher to be clearly in charge and for the curriculum to have substantial content in it, so that way students learn a lot of facts and, and have a lot of things in their memory because that will serve them well later in life. And so I don't presume to say what every single teacher should do in every circumstance, but as far as myself, that is certainly those are the types of things I try to focus on. Professor Ken Coates joins us, Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Johnson Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan, one of Professor Coates' books, and he's written many, What to Consider If You're Considering University. Always good to speak with you, Ken. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. And a high school graduation certificate is an assurance of what these days? Um, Really an assurance that you're a certain age. Um, it, it might not mean much more than that. Um, we have a whole bunch of sort of courtesy passes built into the system now in a bunch of in a bunch of different provincial jurisdictions where you can say you graduated from high school, but you didn't achieve very much. Um, we have different levels of, of accomplishment, the ones that go onto the academic track, the ones that go on the technical track. Um, but essentially what high school graduation means is that you had a chance to learn. It, it doesn't mean you took the chance. It just means you had a chance to learn. And that's the problem. That's what makes us nervous. So when uh, when students arrive at university from high school, do they have expectations? And I guess the thing that keeps popping into my brain is like a little amber flag, particip- participation trophies, participation trophies, <laughs> expectation of getting a passing grade because I showed up. Is that the attitude of at least some students? And I'm not blaming them. I'm, they're the products of what they encountered. To a certain you, can't extent. Blame, you can't blame the students. You know, in one sense, they're the creation of their families, the creation of their schools and the society in general. But, but I, I differentiate it this way, Roy, and I think it's an important distinction. 25 to 30 percent of the students coming out of high school are as good as any students who have ever come out of high school. They're smart. They're talented. They're highly motivated. Uh, they're interested in really fascinating things from studying Japanese language to actually learning about high technology. So that 25 to 30 percent kind of unbeatable. Um, and they're really, really impressive young people. Uh, recognize, secondly, that we've actually expanded the percentage of the high school cohort that goes on to university probably by about 100% in the last 30 years. So when you went to high school, when you went to university, when I went to university back in the good old days, you know, 10, 15% of people went on to post-secondary education. Now it's up to 40% going on. So the, the number of the percentage of that high school class who's going on to university is much, much larger. And Below that 25 to 30%, there are basically 70, 75% of the students who are at risk. We know they're at risk. We know going in, they're at risk. Um, They're not very motivated. They're not sure why they're there. They haven't done really well in high school. They've got courtesy passes to get through. Um, You know, the the teachers know what the requirements are. Um, When universities increase their their requirements and say, we want 80% instead of 75%, it takes about three years for the high schools to catch up. 
and they adjust their grades so that the students can get into the programs they want. So the, the number is not so much, you know, all students, and you, and you agree with that, I'm sure. Many of the students are really, really talented. Yeah. It's the fact that we're, we're forcing too many people into the system, and, and well over half of them are really not ready for it. Um, and then, boy, quite frankly, we can talk about the pandemic. Add the pandemic on top of that, and you've really got a problem. Well, I was about to ask you about that, um, you know, choosing university now in the wake of the pandemic restrictions, uh, it's really tough for, for young people to, to come out of that uh, restriction zone they've been in for two years. How do they accomplish that? What do you recommend? So I'll get to the recommendations first, but sort of talk about this. What happened in two years? Well, probably two years of the worst educational experience in Canadian history. Um, these kids who were in grade 10, 11, 12 during this period of time um, sometimes had their classes interrupted on lockdown, come back to school, lockdown again, going online, which the vast majority of students did not like very much at all. Um, it wasn't because of the teachers weren't trying or the school districts weren't trying. We had a, we had a pandemic and it really made it hard to succeed. Um, so what, I, what would I recommend? I would very strongly recommend that parents and their kids sit down and have really frank conversations, which we don't do. Going to university, college or polytechnic has become sort of a default. I'm 18 years old, time to get on with life. I'm going to go to one of these places. Parents are saving money, et cetera, et cetera. So a couple of things really, really easy to sort of identify. Number one, are the grades sort of decent? That man means sort of 80 or 80 or above. If, if they're below 80, uh, they're, the kids are sort of at risk. If they're below 75, we know they're at serious risk. So that, that's pretty easy to sort of figure out. Do they have excellence somewhere in their life? Uh, it might be hockey, it might be dance, it might be music, it might be working in the United Nations, young United Nations. Do they have some place where they've shown themselves to be above the norm? Those kids are, under, they understand the relationship between work and outcome. And those ones are really, really important. And the third one is really easy. Do they read? Um, do they actually listen to sort of serious radio? Do they listen to, to to proper television documentaries and things like that? Are they really interested in the world? Because if they're not, good gracious, is that ever hard to produce in first year at university? Um, so one of the things we noticed this year we, uh, at our university, University of Saskatchewan, uh, classes came back in full in, in January. Um, really serious problems with attendance. Um, the students just have two years of, of pandemic education. They could go if they want to. They could hook on to a Zoom call um, and turn off their camera and walk away and, 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 and play tiddlywinks in the corner. Goodness knows what they were doing. Um, We've got a real problem this year, which means the students coming out of high school are having trouble adjusting, failure rates are going up, dropout rates are going up, et cetera, et cetera. Choose wisely. Don't just follow the crowd off to university. Give really careful thought as to whether you're ready for that kind of activity, whether you've picked the right program at college, university, or polytech. That's what we need to do. And we don't have those conversations. It becomes a rite of passage. Now I'm 17, 18 years old. Time to get on with my life. I'm going off to post-secondary. Um, and if you look at the dropout rates, if you look at the failure to complete rates, they are shockingly high. We have some institutions in this country that have more than 50% of the first-year students fail. And they don't come back. They may not go back at least for a couple of years. Well, that's a catastrophic loss of money, a loss of time, and loss of confidence. So we're setting people up to do poorly, and that's never a good thing. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.